how you're going to keep going as a Christian. I wonder where our confidence is that this church will keep being a biblical, God-fearing church. Uh, The truth is that we can all think of churches that have veered away from the Bible and veered away from a commitment to the gospel. Uh, We can even think of Christians who've seem to have stopped wanting to come to be with us and they don't appear to be following Jesus. And so I wonder, where is our confidence that, that we are going to keep going as a church and that we're going to keep going in our Christian lives? Well, please open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 13. Uh, you'll find this on page 1212 in the church Bibles. Uh, this is the final uh, sermon in this uh, book of Hebrews that we're going to be looking at and it's, I, I, I start these series and I think goodness this is a massive book how are we going to get through this and then suddenly we're nearly at the end of it well we are at the end of it but despite the difficulties and opposition that this church was facing in the first century despite the sadness that they had seen some of their friends apparently walking away from Jesus, the writer ends with a great note of confidence in prayer and praise. And this is what we're going to examine this morning. He's already asked them to pray for him. And now he shares how he is praying for them. So Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 20. Now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Brothers and sisters, I urge you to bear with my word of exhortation, for in fact I have written to you quite briefly I want you to know that our brother Timothy has been released. If he arrives soon, I will come with him to see you. Greet all your leaders and all the Lord's people. Those from Italy send you their greetings. Grace be with you all. Well, keep your Bibles open. So they're facing challenges, but he's still confident. Now, why is he confident? Well, because he's depending on a great God in prayer. That's why he's confident. Uh, There are two halves to this great benediction at the end of the letter. Because of who God is, in verse 20, he can confidently pray to this God for them in verse 21. Because of how God has been at work in Jesus, in verse 20, he asks for God to continue to be at work in them through Jesus in verse 21. That's the logic of this final prayer. So, uh, Would you meditate with me as we chew over these truths about our amazing God this morning? I think it's so encouraging. It's encouraged me as I've prepared this week. So three encouraging realities about God's work in Christ for us. Firstly, God's peace and power. Look at verse 20. Now may the God of peace. Now, God is both peaceful and a peacemaker. And I think both of those realities are being drawn upon here when it speaks of God as the God of peace. We've all had the experience of being around anxious and conflicted people. 
it's not easy. It's not easy being with such people. I remember as a dental surgeon um, uh, that uh, parents would bring their little children in and the little children would trip in and they were so excited to this, this whole new experience. They'd sit in the chair, they'd be so relaxed and then their parents would start speaking to them in loud, anguished tones. Oh, you're very brave! Don't be frightened! Well, the kid wasn't frightened until it was mentioned and suddenly the kid, by the end, the kid is completely freaked out. There's a stress and a strain, isn't there, when you're around anxious, conflicted people. It kind of just rubs off them onto us. It it must be hard to grow up in a home where your parents are, for whatever reason, constantly angry and agitated. And it leaves its marks. It, It leaves its damage on everyone else. But here's something we need to know about this God that we're approaching with our requests and concerns. He is a God of peace. He's at peace within himself. We have a heavenly father who is happy. He's not irritable. He's not conflicted. He's not anxious. He's not fretful. I I watched the BBC Question Time this week. I think it's the last of the season. And the panel started shouting over each other. They were getting so worried and anxious about what's going to happen with Brexit. Recriminations, fears, anxieties. Mr. Dimbleby was having to calm them all down. Can I tell you something this morning? God is not worried about Brexit. God's not wringing his hands wondering what to do about Donald Trump, about Vladimir Putin, about North Korea, our infinite, glorious God is at peace. Picture a vast ocean with no winds. He's at peace. And this God of peace is committed to bringing peace. The Bible tells us that we're the ones who brought about the conflict We're the ones who caused the aggro. We're the ones who have chosen to rebel against this glorious God and we've sought to sort of throw down his rule over our lives and put little crowns on our heads and and say we're the center of the universe. We're the most important people. We don't care about God. We're in charge. And of course, that's why we're so anxious and fretful because we really can't bear that level of responsibility. We don't have the ability to cope with all that's going on. But this God of peace is so committed to peace that he came into the world through his son Jesus to bring about reconciliation and peace. The Apostle Paul puts it this way. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting men's sins against them. Isn't that wonderful? We have a God at peace And he sees this anxious, fretful, warring world because we've thrown him off and he's come towards us at great cost in his son to bring about the possibility of reconciliation and peace. His son went to the cross to pay the penalty for our sins so that God would pour out his wrath upon him so that we, when we come to Christ, we can know our sins are forgiven, that we're reconciled to God, and uh, this is the joy, that we now have peace with God through Christ. 
And when we really grasp this, it is the basis of beginning to feel in ourselves peace. This peace with God can start filtering out with peace with other people. Earlier in the letter of Hebrews, he urged the church that was obviously experiencing strife and difficulty, pursue peace. Pursue peace. And not only is he the God of peace, he's also the God of power. Did you notice that? Verse 20, this God brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus. I mean, these, this rescue attempt of these boys in Thailand was extraordinary, wasn't it? Have you read the details? Five-hour dives, incredible bravery, an amazing answer to prayer that they've all been rescued safely. And, and sadly, one of those who was attempted the rescue died in the process. But I was reading a report about how um, they're saying that th- these, these, these boys are going to face challenges in the months ahead because they, they've got to confront the reality that they were exposed to death. There they were in the darkness, entombed below the ground, and they're going to have to come to terms with they were that close to it all being over. And that, that takes a process. See, at the root of all of our deepest fears is the fear of death. It's so final. It will get every one of us in the end. Doctors can elongate our lives, but they cannot defeat death. And yet, here is something that can transform our anxious fears. Jesus was killed By the torture of crucifixion on a Friday, he was buried. His corpse lay in a tomb on Saturday, and on the Sunday, God raised him to life again. The resurrection of Jesus declares that there's nothing that can defeat God, not even death itself. This is the powerful God that we come to when we pray. We're coming to a God of peace. We're coming to a God of great power. And secondly, as a consequence, we have a great shepherd. Our Lord Jesus is that great shepherd of the sheep, it says in verse 20. Uh, The thing about sheep is that they need a shepherd to survive. I think sheep are proof that evolution probably is not true. They, They desperately need a shepherd. And in the Bible, we're likened to sheep. We've got this tendency to stray and, and get ourselves into all sorts of trouble. Remember that Jesus looked on the crowds with compassion, for he saw that they were like sheep without a shepherd. That's our state. We've thrown off the rule of God, and we're wandering around like helpless sheep without a shepherd. And Jesus had compassion on the crowds. He is the king and shepherd that we need the one who can reconcile us back to God, the one who will be king over our lives and guard our lives and keep our lives. That's why people love Psalm 23. It is such beautiful imagery, isn't it, that gets to the the blessing and protection of knowing that the Lord is our shepherd. Because if the Lord's my shepherd, then I will lack nothing that I really need. He knows how to lead me to green pastures. He knows how to take me to quiet waters. He he knows how to refresh my soul. He guides me in the right paths. Even in the darkest valleys, I don't need to fear now because he is with me. His rod and his staff are there for my protection and my comfort. 
What a thing to know this great shepherd. Is he your great shepherd this morning? Have you asked him to be the shepherd over your souls, over your life? What an amazing truth to know that we have a deathless shepherd. Raised from the dead, never to die again. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We have a deathless shepherd to keep us, to guard us, to take us safe home. And thirdly, we are bound to this great God of peace and power and to this great shepherd by an eternal covenant who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus. Now what's a covenant? It's sort of a binding agreement, isn't it? Two parties promise a particular special relationship as long as the other side keep up their part of the agreement. And God entered into a covenant relationship with his ancient people at Mount Sinai, an agreement that was sealed with the blood of animal sacrifices. But the problem was that the people reneged on their part of the agreement. They were unfaithful to the promises that they made on that day because of their sin and their rebellion. And even as it looked as if it was all over, when these people were then kicked out of the promised land and, and experiencing all the consequences for their disobedience, God promised that he would bring about a new covenant relationship. We've already meditated on this earlier on in our Hebrews series in, in chapter 7 and 8. This covenant is amazing because it can't go wrong. Because God agrees to do both sides of the covenant. In the book of the Old Testament, uh, in the Old Testament book of Jeremiah, God promised this I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people, for I will forgive their wickedness and I'll remember their sins no more. He, he agrees to do both sides of the, of the covenant agreement. And the basis for this covenant relationship of blessing where God says, I'm going to bless you. You're going to be a blessed people. The basis of that was the willing sacrifice of Jesus upon the cross. And those who trust Jesus personally enter into this blood-bought covenant relationship of blessing with God. What a thing to be in this covenant to know that God's only got blessing for us. What security we can have in our relationship with God. He forgives our sins and remembers our wickedness no more. Now just consider its security there in verse 20. Look at the logic of this verse. Who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus. I had to stop and think about this for a while. When it speaks of the blood, it means the death of Jesus. And because his blood fully covers over all our sins, it seals us in an eternal covenant relationship with God. See, the point is this. If you've, today, if you're someone who's repented of their sin and you've said sorry to God and you've, and you've come to him and said those things and uh, said sorry for the way you've rejected him, you've ignored him, and you've put your trust in Jesus, and it, on, 
in his death for you. He forgives you, and you're now protected by this eternal covenant relationship. It's so secure. My friends, here is a special relationship that is not in doubt. And it's better than a trade deal with America. God has promised our eternal blessing. He's promised us eternal good. We are ransomed, forgiven, and secure with an eternal inheritance. And how do I know this is mine? Well, because it follows on from the first evidence that this eternal covenant is there. And the first evidence was God raised Jesus from the dead. See the logic? Who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus. How do we know this eternal covenant is on? Step one, Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. And because he is raised from the dead, I know this covenant is secure. The price for sins is fully paid. Justice has been satisfied. God is at peace. God had to raise him from the dead. He fully met all that we need for our salvation. And the evidence that the eternal covenant is on is that Christ is risen. And that means I'm secure in this eternal covenant having trusted Christ. We're going to sing at the end this morning about his oath, which is another way of talking about his promise, his covenant. His oath, his covenant and blood are my defense against the flood, against the flood of God's judgment. You know, God's judgment day will come, the Bible says. How do I have confidence that I will survive that day? Well, because his oath, his covenant and blood are my defense. Do we get how strong is the basis of confidence that we can have to come before this God in prayer for his people? We're his blood-bought people. We can approach the God of peace and power knowing that we're eternally secure and blessed and knowing that we have a deathless shepherd in our Lord Jesus. That's the basis by which we can come to this God in prayer. You can't be more secure than that. Do you get that? And on that basis of confidence with God, he prays for them. And he prays for them so that they will have this great confidence, whatever difficulties they're going to face as a church or in their lives, that they can have this great confidence for the days ahead. So look at what he prays for them in verse 21. See, as God has been at work in Jesus, he prays that God would be at work in them. And there's three things. Firstly, God's equipping. Verse 21 equip you with everything good for doing his will. I don't know whether you watched tennis yesterday, but if, uh, if you want to play tennis, there's something essential you need. You need to be equipped with a racket, right? To play golf, you can't do much without some golf clubs. You need to be equipped with some golf clubs. To race in Formula One, well, you need a very fast car and lots of money. Well, he prays that God would give them all that they need to be able to do God's will as a church. Uh, that word translated equip has that sense of being made fit, being made ready for use. In the Gospels, it's used of the disciples and they're repairing their nets 
as fishermen so the nets will be prepared and ready for the, for the work of, of hopefully catching fish. It's used earlier in the letter of God fitting his son with a body to be able to do God's will. And here's what's so encouraging. God does not ask us to engage in a task that we're not equipped to do. They might feel a bit battered and bruised from the past. They might be feeling a bit discouraged or even distracted. But his prayer for them is that God will equip them, repair them, prepare them with every good thing that they will need to be able to do God's will in their church and in their lives. What a great thing to pray. Here's a wonderful truth to encourage us and give us confidence as a church. Everything that we need to be able to do God's will is something that he is richly able to supply us. We have a resourceful God who is able to equip his people with everything good. Fully kit us out. And when we lack, we simply need to turn to him in prayer. But more than just giving them the equipment, he also prays secondly for God's empowering. Look at verse 21 again. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ. See, he not only gives us the Formula One car, he also gives us the fuel in the car. This God enables and empowers his church and his people to be able to do what it needs to be, needs to be done to please him. And do you notice he does all of this through Jesus Christ? Through Jesus Christ. Now we get this same idea in the, in the letter of Philippians where uh, the Apostle Paul says to the church in Philippi, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. They need to work. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who works in you. To will, he works on our will and our desires, and to work, um, to, to be able to act according to his good purpose. He works in our will and our actions. So work out your salvation, for it's God who is at work in your will and your actions. We are called to work, to effort, to action in our Christian lives, to be active and engaged in his work, knowing all the while that it is God who is at work in us to even desire to want to do his will. Why do you think you're in church today? God's been at work in your will to want to gather with this people. You might even be Christians today, but God's somehow worked in your life and you're here today. It wasn't just because you were clever or lucky. God's at work. When the Apostle Paul speaks of his own gospel ministry, he puts it in this way to the church in Colossae. To this end, I strenuously contend. So what does gospel ministry feel like for Paul? Hard work. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. Christ is powerfully was it powerfully at work in the Apostle Paul? What does it feel like to have Christ powerfully at work in you? Is it sort of like power up? Mm, nothing can stop me now. Is that what it's like? Well, no. It feels like strenuous, hard, sweaty labor. 
Some weeks, the sermon isn't coming together, and I'm desperately praying, Lord, I'm, I'm a useless pastor. I want to give up. I can't do this. I should go back to dentistry. I can't keep doing this. Lord, help me to keep going. And do you know what? Suddenly, he doesn't suddenly oh, come over me like a right. He just gives me strength to go back to my desk and keep working until it's done. It's never done, is it? Because on Monday, it's always a better sermon. I say, oh, I should have said that. I should have said that. Anyway. God gives us empowering grace to keep doing the work. The evidence that, that Christ is at work in our lives is that we are busy at Christ's work. That's the evidence. And this is what the writer to this church prays for them, that through Christ, God would continue to empower them to be able to engage in the work of doing God's will as a church in a way that pleases God. A few weeks ago, we thought about what sort of things please God. If you look back at verse 15, again, notice it's through Jesus. All of this is only possible through Jesus. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name. And do not forget to do good and to share with others, for with such sacrifices, God is pleased. As we praise him with our lips on a Sunday and throughout the week, as we engage in the worship of our lives, doing good, sharing with others, these are the sacrifices that please God. God can equip us and empower us to be a church where, as it says in verse 1 of this chapter, that we keep loving each other as brothers and sisters. A church where we don't forget to show hospitality to strangers, where we don't forget to notice who's missing, where we honor marriage, where we, uh, we keep claiming the promises of God to pursue contentment in our lives, where we have confidence in our church leaders and respond to them in a way that makes their work a joy and not a burden. A church where we pray. A church where we depend upon God and his resources and his power. If we're lacking a sense of his power, what should we do? Well, if we lack, we simply need to turn to him in prayer. Now, I love Charlotte Chapel. When I first got here, I was terrified. I'm only slightly less frightened, and also I've got this love. It's my privilege to be an elder, to be a pastor here, but you know, one of my concerns for our church is this the relative small numbers of people who make it a priority to come together to pray. There's a significant number drop at the Church of Prayer, the monthly prayer time on a Sunday evening. Uh, when we gather to pray for our mission partners, it's a relatively small number. And if we want to please God, to be empowered about his work, we cannot do it without a sense of total dependence upon God in prayer. He's equipped us with all that we need. He's willing to empower us with all the energy we require. But we do need to be those who show that we want him to. <laughs> to depend upon him. But when we are prayerful, when people do get saved and people are growing and people are developing their gifts and people are going out with the gospel... And we do this depending upon all the resources he provides. The output will be this third point. It will all be to God's eternal glory. To whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. 
See, when rebels get reconciled, the God of peace gets the glory. When sinners are forgiven and rejoice over their salvation, God gets the glory. When our lives are transformed through the risen power of Jesus Christ, God gets the glory. When God's people um, continue to follow the shepherd, God gets the glory. When a church continues for 210 years to preach the same gospel and to hold God's word, guess what? God gets the glory. When all of God's people are gathered in and Jesus Christ returns and brings in his eternal kingdom, then what we have done with our lives in service to God will stand for all eternity to the praise of God's glory. And that is the basis on which we can have confidence for the future in this amazing God. If we will lean in, and depend upon him. This writer prays for the church in the first century that they will do that. Do you want to pray this for our church? For us? For our lives? I do. Do you? Well, let's pray it together, shall we? Have the words in front of you. We'll use the words of the NIV text. Let's pray the benediction together. And then we'll sing a closing song. Now, may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Invite the band up here.